You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello and a very warm welcome to Middle East Analysis for the third consecutive month. I can hear people gasping out there. Delighted to be able to say that, actually. And what you don't know, because I don't actually think you can hear it, so I'm going to have to describe this to you. We are in a lovely apartment room, not the studio where we usually record this Middle East analysis, right next to a very major road in London. But of course, I'm hoping you don't know that. One thing I think you might know, or you could at least hazard a guess, is that I am sitting opposite Dr. Harry Hagopian. Our wonderful contributor always does a grand job. Lawyer, ecumenical expert, advisor, consultant. I could go on, couldn't I, Harry? Tell us about all those hats you wear. Well, forget the hats, uh, James, but it's a pleasure to host you in a different part of uh, London. And uh, it's a pleasure to talk about the troubles of the Middle East, North Africa and Gulf regions, as well as I suppose, I don't know. I mean, what our listeners don't know is that we do not have long conversations about our Middle East analysis interviews. We just sit together and then the words flow, and that's part of your skills. So if you're going to ask me about the coronavirus as well, but in all, a very, very nice flat, if I may say so myself, talking about the miseries of people in another part of the world. Well, in that sense, you're absolutely right. I am going to ask you about the coronavirus, or it's a family of viruses. I should be specific. COVID-19, as is the threat at the moment, and a global one too. But it has had a significant impact on the Middle East and North Africa, I should say, because I noticed that Egypt has confirmed uh, a case there in terms of being the first African country, I think. Obviously, Iran. I think many people have spoken about Iran and, and its troubles containing this particular virus. Bethlehem. I had a little news release hit my desk, actually, telling us that a restricted area of movement anyway, but the tourist sites, the holy sites have all been closed off. Israel, I believe, at the time of us speaking, has decided to put a 14-day quarantine on anybody coming into the country. Harry, give us that sweep of how COVID-19 is impacting upon the Middle East and North Africa. COVID-19 is impacting everybody across the world. And what it has proven is, first of all, it's a very nasty little bug that is quick to infect people, quick to spread, and also one that has proved that in the global world that we live in, nobody is safe or immune from such viruses or such epidemics. So yes, indeed, I mean, as all our listeners would know, this whole story started in uh, China and then gradually spread across the world. And now the three worst hit countries, I understand, are China and then uh, Italy and Iran. So you've got one in each continent, in a sense, and of course, a lot of other uh, countries as well. Now, the difference, if there is a difference, because the virus, the makeup of the virus is the same no matter where it is and whomever it in infects. But the difference is that in some countries, at least such as the United Kingdom, we are fortunate enough to have a public health system that would in some way be able to take up the challenge and try to mitigate the worst excesses of this virus, or at least 
I hope it will. Looking at Italy, my words become redundant. But we're still hopeful that, uh, considering we're in the delay containment phase at the moment, that we'll be able, our NHS, the wonderful men and women working across so many different areas of the NHS, would be able to help us go through this very difficult and challenging period. But if you look at some of the countries in the Middle East, North Africa, and the Gulf, where this virus has begun to rear its ugly head as well, they do not have those health institutions and those policies to be able to help them contain or help them face up to the challenge. And if you look at places like Iraq, Iraq is a half-demolished country in some sense, unfortunate because it's a beautiful uh, country, I should add. And how are they going to be able to fight this epidemic, this virus? The same could be said of Iran. Iran has so many ills, its sanctions, its economy, its hierarchy, its mulocracy. Everything militates against a functional state. And then you can go on, look at Lebanon. Lebanon has now over 40, 45 cases as we speak. And uh, Lebanon is living in the throes of an economic meltdown, largely due to wrong political decisions as well as endemic corruption. And therefore, how are they going to be able uh, to cope with this? The Palestinian territories, I mean, they don't really have the money. They don't have the ability to uh, figure out the public health policies themselves. You mentioned Bethlehem. Yes, the crossings between Israel and the Palestinian territories virtually known as Palestine, or with Jordan across a bridge that I know very well, because I've crossed that bridge so many times, the King Hussein or Alembi Bridge are closed as well. So whichever way I look, in the Middle East, North Africa, there are cases now in Algeria, in Tunisia, in Morocco. And if we go further to the Gulf, where money is not really an object and a problem, even there in Kuwait, uh, United Arab Emirates, in Saudi Arabia, in Qatar, in the Sultanate of Oman, there are cases already and the worry is how do you manage to contain this? How do you manage to deal with this? It's very, very worrying. It's worrying on a health focus, but it's also worrying because it is wreaking havoc with the economies of the world. I mean, the FTSE 100 index, the shares have collapsed so heavily over the last two, three years. The oil prices have dropped dramatically, and there is an almighty fight brewing between Russia and the, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia on oil. Uh, one wants to reduce the amount, the other one doesn't, because they're both playing a political game, even in the midst of a health crisis. So all of this does not actually... Uh, give me any sense of comfort or solace or relief. Add to that the fact that, and I'm sorry to say this because somewhere in your whole ethos, James, you are also a journalist, and I'm afraid that the media are actually adding uh, oil to the fire because they're uh, adding to the panic and the concern and the nervousness of the people when they say, oh, you know, if you're above a certain age and you have underlying problems, then you might as well die. And I was talking to somebody today, I was in another uh, meeting, and one person told me 
Harry, uh, he said, you know what, the message I'm getting even from our own uh, United Kingdom uh, government and health officials here is that if you're above 50, 55, and if you've got some problems, which inevitably at that age we all get, uh, then you're dispensable, you're expendable, because we have to take care of the 20s and the 30s. Uh, and I am a little bit worried about that because the value of human life is not necessarily only defined through age. There are other quite important uh, specifications, if you want, not least religious, but also others as well. Do you know what occurred to me when I was um, sort of thinking about COVID-19? I was thinking of the time a few years ago when I was in Gaza. Now, I know that's a very specific example, but there was a, you know, we, we visited hospitals and also realised the limited scope of those hospitals, even in times without any particular crisis because of the lack of freedom of movement, the fact that certain operations were only possible in Israel, but the chances of actually being able to be treated there, very slim indeed. And then I thought, well, crikey, somewhere like that, possibly somewhere like Yemen, if they were to get overwhelmed, it would be disastrous, wouldn't it? Absolutely true. And that is my worry. I mean, in a place which is already a war disaster, like Yemen, for instance, uh, only today, Lise Dusset reported from Taz. And Taz is a beautiful city, which is divided between the Houthis and the government uh, soldiers. And it is absolutely... Uh, dismembered. And these people who sometimes don't have anything to eat, who are poor, who have absolutely no hygiene, once a virus gets to one or two of those, then in a situation where there are no uh, public health policies, where there is no medicine, where there is no uh, oxygen mask or anything, how are they going to cope? Or take Gaza. Gaza is a very good example, and I worry about Gaza, and I worry about the Palestinian uh, territories, because First of all, Israel is going to take care of its own people and not of its neighbors, the Palestinians. And that's perfectly understandable. In a crisis, you start with your own before you think of somebody else. However, there are neighbors. And if in Gaza, which has 1.8 million people living cheek by jowl, where, as you very well said, in the best days, you have sewage running down the streets where nothing works properly because of such a tight, suffocating embargo, whereas a lot of people have described it an open cage, if that nasty virus, which infects and spreads so easily, COVID-19, if it were to go to one or two of those people, well, you've got a whole 1.8 million who are susceptible to it. And even if the rate of infection is 40% and the mortality rate is 3 to 4% at most at the moment, according to WHO figures, then multiply that, do the percentage, take your calculator out, and you'll see how many thousands upon thousands of people are going to die and the consequences of that. So I am very worried. I'm very worried about Iraq. I did mention Iraq because Iraq is the second richest oil-producing country in the region. And yet, if you go to some places in Iraq, including the south, where most of the oil drilling takes place and from where most of the income comes into the country, you will see that it is like a not a developing country, but it's a pre-developed country. So all this unsettles me. And on top of that, I hear people telling me, oh, yes, you're going to get it if you don't do this and you don't do that. And none of this works. I mean, yes, wash your hands for 20 seconds every five minutes. But the minute you go out and hold the rail of a bus or a train, 
that's it. What, you're going to wash your hands in the middle of a train? So it's, and there are no hand gels or sanitizers because the shelves are empty, uh, no loo rolls, no uh, Dettol uh, wipes, nothing is available. So I'm telling the government and the NHS, if you want to help us in this country, because they can't do this in the MENA region anyway, Take care of this. I've asked people in Germany, colleagues and friends of mine, I've asked people in the Gulf region, could you go please and check if in the Gulf, in the pharmacies and the big, big, big department stores, you can find some uh, hand gels and they've told me, sorry, we're out or they're out. So can you imagine uh, what is happening? It's a big, big crisis. And that crisis at the end of the day shows the big weakness and the frailty of globalization. And it also shows that despite all our arrogant, uh, supercilious attitudes that we own the world, we do this, we do that, we can fly to Mars, a tiny one micron virus that you can't protect yourself with a mask and need a microscope to see can wreak so much havoc and provide so much problems and worry to everybody, including Yours truly, we just met here when I welcomed you to Kensington. I told you, let's not shake hands. And you said, yeah, that's fine. So imagine how people are being exercised by this idea here. And trust you me, I know the Arabs of the MENA and the Gulf region. They also panic and dramatize quite easily. So it's not a nice picture. Tell you what, though, there's a little bit of profiteering going on here, isn't there? And I'll give you a little example on my tiny little level. So I came off a coach thinking, right, I need some hand sanitizer. This was probably seven days ago. Even then, hardly anything available. Several supermarkets later, I thought, hang on, I've got to change track here. Maybe a pharmacy, whatever. And I'd walked as far, not around the corner, South Kensington. Got as far as Knightsbridge and thought, right, I'm going to try one of these Arabic pharmacies. So I got met at the door, very friendly, I've never known that before, taken into the shop. What are you looking for? I'm looking for some hand sanitizer. Ah, her face lit up actually. Ah, come over here. <laughs> there were three different sizes. The big pump action one, sounds like a weapon, I shouldn't say that. The big pump one, middle, medium sized, and a little, you know, the sort of carry in your pocket type of one. So I thought, well, you know, I might never see hand sanitizer again. I'll go for the big one. Guess how much? 250 mil with a pump. Seven pounds? 19.99. Wow. It's a lot, isn't it? That is a lot. And it made me think, you know, supply and demand, it's sort of... People are profiting, aren't they? Are they profiting in the Middle East, do you think? Are there any economic signs that, you know, money can be made out of global fear? Look, profiteering, uh, James, is a human weakness. It does not define itself by ethnicity or nationality, that if you're English, you do not profiteer. And if you're, I don't know, Jordanian, you profiteer. If anything, I think it's the other way around. Because if you take, for instance, Iran, let me give you a counterexample, because I fully take on board what you're saying. I've looked for those hand gels. I haven't found them. Incidentally, I've even looked at pharmacies, including the one that dispenses my own uh, prescriptions. And he looked at me bemused. And I hate that bemused look. It's almost like, ha, 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 you're not getting any hand gels. A sense of gloating sometimes by people saying, oh, 
what an idiot. You know you're not going to get hundreds, so why are you asking? But in a place like Iran, for instance, and let me talk of Isfahan in the south, which is a beautiful part of Iran. I actually am very fond of the country, as you know, and Isfahan is also one of the landmarks of the Armenian community in Iran. If you go to Isfahan, the Armenian church has a wealth of treasures and churches and uh, decades-long history there that predates even the 1915 genocide. It's and known as a religious city, isn't it? No, the religious city is Qom. That's actually where the virus started in Iran, in Qom. So this time, the Shia prophets and the gods were not with the Iranians when it started the virus. We have to make a joke. I mean, we can't be too serious, otherwise it'll kill us before the virus does. So, sorry about that apocalyptic note, uh, listeners. This is an Armenian talking, so we are used to drama. And, <laughs> but in Iran, for instance, in Isfahan, what happens is that there are like co-ops here. There are shops and market, vegetable markets, where the government specifies the price. Now, there are a lot of places where they're actually the prices are soaring because this is, as you said, all a question of demand and supply. And whilst in 2008 the economic crisis was because of demand, this time the economic crisis is because of supply, the lack of. And therefore, uh, in Isfahan, those places, it's like a co-op, a conglomeration, a, a syndicate, a trade union, if you want, of people who actually have decided to keep the price at the government-pegged levels, and they're going around giving coffees and little pastries, Iranian pastries, to the people in hospital, the nurses and the people who are working there. So when you have a crisis like this, I think, and I've lived, I'm long in the tooth enough to be able to say something as broad and unscripted as this, that in, in times like this, you get two reactions, I think. And you're a religious man, you're a man of faith, so you might agree with me. You either get the very profiteering, oh, let's make a buck out of this attitude, and that's part of human nature, or you get the exact opposite, the yin and yang, which is, we are all in this together. We're all part of the human race. This is our global village. Uh, let's help each other. And in a sense, I tie this in, and this is not our uh, podcast, but I want to tie it in because last Sunday in the Armenian Orthodox Church, uh, the gospel reading was the parable of the prodigal son. Take that example of the two brothers, and those two brothers put them together. That's the human being for you today. I could get all idealistic and look back at our last podcast on Israel-Palestine and say, <laughs> wouldn't it be nice if something, you know, bad, like a virus um, spreading around the world, actually brought people together that had for decades been apart? But I suppose that's too idealistic. In a sense, I think that is too idealistic. Certainly with uh, Netanyahu at the head of Likud. Sorry, guys, I'm scoring cheap points here <laughs> politically. But I don't like the guy, but then I know it and he knows it. So the interesting point you made, James, here is not only about Israel-Palestine, but I've actually read two articles in which they're saying, would a global crisis like this, where it level pegs everybody, it's a level playing field, nobody can say, I'm better than you because I won't get the virus and you will, 
Whether you have money or you're poor, whether you're in the best job in the world or unemployed, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you come from Zaire and Zimbabwe or you come from, uh, I don't know, uh, Stockholm and uh, London, it's the same thing. But I read two articles saying, would this bring us together? Would this be like bridge building? Is this idealistic? Well, a lot of idealism is what has defined policies across the world. Uh, Look at the international treaties and accords that have been negotiated by different political statesmen across the decades and generations. Part of it was an idealism not to do something until somebody comes and completely mucks it up. Uh, I'll give you just one example Why did we form the European Economic Community? It was in order to preserve peace after two big wars in in Europe. So there's always that motivation by human beings. And uh, it it really depends on how you look at this. And at moments you say, no, 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 it's all about me, me, me. And then at other times you say, no, me, me, me cannot exist without us, us, us. So it really depends on how you, uh, how you look at things. But yes, does it test our mettle? Yes. Does it test our resilience? Yes. Does it test our ability to discipline ourselves enough to be able to, uh, to deal with things? Yes. Does it make Israelis and Palestinians talk together? Probably at a grassroots level, a bit more easily than at the higher echelons of politics or hierarchy. Uh, I, 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 don't, uh, I don't really know, but I'm looking at Europe, for instance, now, and I'm looking to see how much European countries are helping each other, how much are we helping Italy, as it's in complete lockdown, north to south, everything is in lockdown. How much are we helping or how much are we saying, okay, we learn a lesson and then apply those lessons in our own countries? Look at uh, Qatar, look at Saudi Arabia, look at uh, um, Oman and the Kuwait, for instance. All these countries, they've stopped uh, travel to about 10 to 15 countries. No planes, no flights, no border crossings, nothing. And this, at the end of the day, somebody was telling me, Harry, this is going to be a massive economic problem for everybody, including us in the UK, and I quote the person, and it's going to be worse than Brexit. And I said, yes, possibly the consequences would be worse than uh, Brexit, and they're more short-term than Brexit. However, however, at the end um, of the day, it's not about money. It's about human lives. And I put life before money. Perhaps my last big words to you, James. (laughs) Well, you mentioned Netanyahu, so it may be a good time for me to ask in my rather ignorant way, because I haven't been keeping up as I should, what the state of play is with regard to the elections in Israel, because we we talked about them ahead of time in our last podcast, wondering if there would be uh, anything that, that might change the dynamic in that region. So that's the question. Has anything happened that might change the dynamic? After the build-up of the coronavirus and the COVID-19, now we talk about elections in Israel. What can I tell you which doesn't bore our listeners too much? What I would say is that we had three successive parliamentary elections in Israel because nobody could get enough of a majority to form a coalition. So the world was divided in Israeli politics between the far, far right, the far right, and the right, And then you had the center, left center, 
There's no left because there's hardly anybody on the left in Israeli politics, at least institutionally these days. They tried the first time after the elections. The caretaker prime minister couldn't get, uh, couldn't cobble together a government. The main chief uh, opposition leader, Benny Gantz of Kahol Lavan of Blue and White Party, couldn't do it, which is centrist left, couldn't do it. We had a second election, ditto. It's almost like the same voters cast the same vote. So what changes? Third time round was a little bit more exciting a few days ago because people were thinking that the system has to give and something has to happen. So what happened is everybody got excited because they thought, aha, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, who is known in the, that part of the world as a magician, because somehow he manages to survive every single political calamity you throw at him. He's got three indictments to go to court on a whole host of issues, and yet the man is as popular and as powerful and as dangerous as ever. And the thinking was, and we touched upon this last time we had a Middle East analysis, an MEA, that things would either go in the way of Netanyahu and he would finally crack it, or alternatively the voters would say, no, we've given up on this man, we're going to get his chief opposition. Well, that didn't happen. And at the beginning, it was a very mixed up uh, picture. Nobody knew who would be able to form a government. Initial soundings were that Netanyahu would actually manage to just squeeze through. The Israeli parliament, the Knesset, uh, consists of 120 seats, James. So Netanyahu needs a coalition of 61 in order to be able to at least govern for a while before that coalition disappears again. And he couldn't do it. They thought he would do it at the beginning. He thought he could manage to do it. He couldn't because the kingmakers, and there are a couple of them, certainly one uh, who is the head of Yisrael Beitenu, Avigdor Lieberman, who basically his constituency is Russian Jews. He does not want to go to bed politically with the religious Israeli right. And therefore, these two are mutually exclusive in uh, Netanyahu's camp. So at the moment... Uh, the situation is still very touch and go, but there are indications that since he's failing to put a coalition government together, maybe the alternative might work. However, and I can see from your eyes you've got another question ready for me. I, and listeners, I can see his eyes quite well now because just imagine in a studio setting, James is quite far from me with all those fancy machines. Now we're sitting in this comfortable and nice uh, flat round a round glass table and we're literally a few centimeters away from each other so we are defying the public health instructions to have a meter between us if anything happens to me it's your fault and so <laughs> so what is happening now in my opinion is one thing only that i take out of those elections netanyahu didn't win benny gantz and the left center didn't win either the only people who won are the Arabs of Israel because they formed all the Arab parties who used to compete with each other in previous elections, decided to come together and form a joint Arab list of all of them together. So when an Arab Israeli voter 
Palestinian Arab Israeli, in other words, with an Israeli passport, but nonetheless a Palestinian Arab living in Israel in the pre-1948 border, so that's in the green zone, places like Nazareth, for instance, or Jaffa, Jaffa, or these places, Tiberias, Lake of Galilee, where there are mixed uh, Arab-Israeli Jewish uh, communities. They came together and they decided to run together, and they managed this time to... Uh, get 15 seats, and it's the third largest uh, party now in the Knesset, in the new parliament, after Likud with Benjamin Netanyahu and Kahol Lavan with uh, Benny Gantz. And these 15, the Israeli Jewish politicians will never enter into a formal coalition with them because they don't trust the Arabs, and the Arabs don't trust them. But what has changed in the dynamics is for the first time ever, those Arab MKs, which are members of the Knesset, which means members of parliament, are willing to prop up Benny Gantz of Kahol Lavan from the outside. So if he gets enough votes and they prop him up without officially doing it, we've had this, by the way, in the UK. So we have experience in this. From the outside, people say, yes, will be with you. Northern Ireland comes to mind. So in a sense, they, they might do this. And if they enter into this agreement, then we might have uh, Benny Gantz as the future prime minister, and we will not need to witness a fourth round of parliamentary elections uh, for Israel. And how long will that uh, government last? I don't know how permanent or temporary it will be, but it would be a breakthrough in this sort of awful situation where there is no government and Netanyahu is very happy with this state of affairs. Why? Because he's caretaker prime minister so he can continue this when he knows that he will not be able to get a fresh government himself. But I would say, and I say this unabashedly and categorically, the real victors this time were the Arab list headed by Ayman Oudeh Ayman Ode is a fantastic guy. I think, if I'm not mistaken, he must be in his late 40s, early 50s. He is from uh, the uh, Yaffa neighborhood, a village there. He studied law, incidentally, in Romania, but never practiced law. And he's been involved with politics for a long time. He has so much charisma, and he managed to get all those uh, Arab uh, parties together to form this Arab joint list. By the way, I tweeted about this today only. Uh, the Arab joint list, and he's big. He's got big beasts with him, like Dr. Ahmed Tibi and uh, Yazbek and others who are working with him. So maybe, maybe there will be uh, a breakthrough. But let me hasten to add one other thing. It doesn't make a blind bit of difference whether Netanyahu becomes prime minister again or whether Benny Gantz becomes prime minister. Neither one of them is going to bend backward to try and find a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So if anybody is thinking, let's get rid of Netanyahu, which would be a great thing in my opinion, sorry folks, and let's get Benny Gantz there, Great, because he might be very much less corrupt and very much well-meaning on social uh, level and on the social ills of the country, unemployment, poverty, uh, discrimination, and all that sort of thing. But if anybody thinks that Benny Gantz is going to roll back 
what Netanyahu has done with President Trump, and he's going to suddenly find a solution to uh, to the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict. Well, if he does, you know what? I'll be the first one to open a bottle of champagne if I'm alive. If uh, if uh, not, and I don't think so, Benny Gantz might be good for Israel. I don't necessarily think he's any better for the Palestinians. I love it when I'm about to ask a question and, and you I, ask you ask and answer <laughs> that question. This you is know, a very directional mic, you know. I should explain to our listeners that you can probably hear Harry off mic laughing there, whereas normally in the studio you would get those Hagopian bellows coming <laughs> coming through very clearly. So I'm sorry you can't hear them clearly. Picking up on your point about the big winners, mm-hmm. those those new members of the Knesset, the um, Arabs. Some of them are not new. They've been they're being re-elected, but there are new ones because 15 MKs by the Arab community, which is less than 20% of the overall Israeli voting population, is quite remarkable. So if we say that a Benny Gantz um, coalition won't necessarily change much for the situation between Israel and Palestine, what is the benefit then of having those 15 MKs and and the, the, the political say they may or may not have? There are two reasons, but it's a very valid question because this is a question that the Arab Israelis themselves, in Arabic they're known as Arab Israel, which means literally the Arabs of Israel. They've asked themselves this question, and many people have asked them this question as well. Why do you bother to vote? I mean, what do you get out of it if you don't help resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Let's go back a couple of uh, steps. These are people who live within Israel itself, within the borders recognized by international law as being Israel. In other words, the 1948 borders, not the occupied territories. As such, they achieve two things, perhaps even three. One, these people are living like uh, the Israeli Jews within Israel, they have the same problems, the poverty, the unemployment, the social issues, all these things, the discrimination, the very vapid discrimination. And I'm using vapid, although I know it might not fit in very well, but in my books it does. Uh, Discrimination that uh, exists in Israel. I mean, these are a minority that's discriminated against. So first of all, they're interested in their social issues, in what happens to their daily lives in Israel. That's the first thing. On a broader meta level, this also, if this, and it's a big if yet because no government has been put together, if they manage to support or prop up or help a Benny Gantz premiership, then it's the first time that they actually are being taken seriously and respected in their own right as politicians in Israel, and it is a breakthrough for the Israeli Jewish establishment when Netanyahu spent the past three elections bad-mouthing them and saying to everybody from his constituencies, please come and vote, you Israeli Jews, because every vote you do not cast will be a vote for the Israeli Arabs. I mean, the guy was unbelievable, and they proved that despite all that, About 70% of the Arab-Israeli voting population came out and voted this third round, which is remarkable. It's just a tad below or above the national average. So one, 
the social issues that have nothing to do with the politics of Israel-Palestine. Second, they become involved with politics. And remember, they might not be in the government. They might not get a ministerial portfolio, but they will still be, as the third largest member, a party in the Knesset, they will still be members of the various committees and they will wield, whether the economic, the justice, whatever, and they will wield influence in those uh, committees. And the third thing is that because their political antennae for the majority of them is pro-Palestine and having a Palestinian state next to them and all that self-determination uh, narrative, they might be able to do something. And let me add one point. As a lot of Israeli Jewish correspondents and journalists, certainly very well-known ones from Haaretz, for instance, would tell you, the remarkable thing is that there is a tiny, it's still tiny, but it's very demonstrative of a phenomenon that might build up in the future, and that might be helpful. Um, a tiny number of Israeli Jewish voters who cannot vote for Netanyahu because they think he's the worst option, who do not vote for Benny Gantz because they're not sure exactly how wishy-washy he is, how much he flip-flops in order to be prime minister, have actually voted. And because, sorry, and because the left in Israel, uh, parties like Labour, uh, Meretz, uh, and all these are not proving that they can do anything, some of those have actually voted for the Arab lists. And that in itself, I think, is a sociological phenomenon that a lot of pundits will be talking about. And it'd be interesting to see if this continues and if we were finding that gray zone where Arab Israeli and Israeli Jew are coming together and saying, we're fed up of all this cantankerous, uh, backbiting, uh, attitude of our politicians. Let's find a middle that works. A very interesting ph phenomenon. You talked about idealism. That is my idealism today. Very interesting, Harry, because I mean, I suppose we could look at this rather than the deep political significance as perhaps a precursor to something better, maybe. That's, that's what I'm, I'm hoping. Now, we're fast nearing the end, so I'm going to give you a choice of the final topic. Yes, I can see you wincing. No one else can see you wincing, but I can. So you can either take on the military chessboard, the global military chessboard that is Syria, or you can talk to us a little bit about the uh, detaining of Saudi royals by the Crown Prince. Which one of those two do you want to take on? Can I do both in two sentences each? If you can, you can. <laughs> Syria, Idlib, Turkey. Basically, it's Turkey playing with the grown-ups. Who are the grown-ups in the Syria uh, story? Certainly Russia, which holds a lot of the cards, but also the United States. And what Turkey is doing, it wants to be friends with Russia and be friends with the United States as well. And it wants to promote its own agenda in Syria. Uh, President Erdogan is playing a very difficult game. Whether he will succeed, I don't know. Whether the EU or NATO will back him, will support him, will be his friends or not, 
I don't know. But he has a couple of cards. He has the 3.7 million refugees in Turkey. And if he does what he did recently and open the door just a crack for some of those to come into Europe, then our European EU leaders will start getting panic attacks worse than the coronavirus attack. So that's one thing to watch as to how does a President Erdogan, who is becoming a bit of an autocrat himself, in fact, quite a bit of an autocrat, how he's going to be able to manage this. It's not going to be easy. And I fear and I worry about those people caught up in the fight in Idlib. It's almost like being caught up between a rock and a hard uh, place or between, if you want to go into Greek mythology, between Charybdis and Scylla. Take the royals in Saudi Arabia. What happened with the detention of those royals, some of whom are relatives of the king, some of whom have been prominent politicians in their own right? It's basically the crown prince Mohammed bin Salman, MBS as everybody knows him, who is basically consolidating his uh, power. And as his father gets weaker and weaker, and the day when the crown prince or somebody is going to succeed him, he's trying to make sure that he frightens everybody enough so that when that day comes, uh, he will be the one to uh, become king of Saudi Arabia. He's impulsive, he's young, he's confrontational, he is somebody who does not understand political diplomacy, he understands just brutal force, and he's proved it time and again with the arrest or detention of a whole bunch of people in the past, and it's almost like pay the money and you're no longer hostages of my system. The same thing now with these princes who are equally, if not more, prominent, and at the end of the day, the man who ultimately was responsible for the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi is the one who is actually calling the shots. And neither the United States nor Europe, the two vanguards of democracy in a world that is becoming more and more insane, have the backbone to say, hey, stop, because Saudi Arabia has money, Saudi Arabia has oil, and Saudi Arabia is a heavy uh, strategic player in the region. And we have seen time and again this, even with the stupid spat with Qatar. Do you know, I'm going to rewind a little bit when you were talking about Syria. I saw you check yourself. When you were talking about President Erdogan, I thought you were going to say he's playing a dangerous game, but you said he's playing a difficult game. And I noticed you picked your word really carefully there, didn't you? I did. And the reason I did is very simple. If I want to be bluntly honest with you, James, I would say and the few Greek Cypriot genes you have in your own uh, genome map will understand what I'm talking about. As an Armenian, most Armenians would expect me to only find bad things about Erdogan. I think that is stupid because that's a guttural feeling that serves nobody. And I would say that President Erdogan the problem is he's got autocratic tendencies and they're growing quite exponentially over the years. I mean, he wasn't like this when he first became uh, prime minister and he certainly wasn't like this when he first became president. Power is going to his head as it goes to everybody's head. But and he survived the coup, didn't he? And he did survive the coup. And uh, like a lot of other politicians, he's beginning to believe only his own narrative. So in a sense, what is happening is that He's trying to 
get what he thinks is best for Turkey. Now, there are a lot of things he's doing with which I am totally in disagreement. But there are other things he's doing which I understand as somebody who is trying to defend the national interests of Turkey, not least, and I always come back to this, when we in the West talk and criticize, and there is so much criticism leveled against uh, Turkey and Erdogan, even by Turks themselves, even the country is divided, I don't know, almost 40-60 or 50-50, I would say that this man has got 3.7 million refugees. Between Turkey, Lebanon and Jordan, they pretty much divided the refugee problem amongst themselves, certainly the Syrian one, if not the Iraqi one, if not before that, the Palestinian one. So, Before I cast too many stones at Erdogan, and I'm tempted to do that not only as an Armenian, but as somebody who sees how he's going wild on so many fronts, I also measure the enormous benefits that Turkey is providing to the refugees and as a strategic NATO partner. And therefore, I try to be Harry the podcast analyst, rather than Harry, the guttural Armenian, if you want. Well, I think that makes you even more credible. And I have to say, it's been a very good podcast, enjoyable for me. We've talked power plays, whether that's in Saudi Arabia, whether it's in Turkey. We've talked fast-spreading viruses that we no doubt will talk again about, I'm sure. We've talked Israeli elections, and I've learned a bit about the new members of the Knesset. Have I pronounced that right? Yeah, absolutely, the Knesset. Um, actually, what uh, that... Do you know, listeners, and you also, James, I don't think you know this, unless I've told you this in a conversation. The Knesset, the Israeli parliament, is built on land that is leased from the Greek Orthodox Patriarchate of Jerusalem. It's land that belongs to the Greek Orthodox Patriarchate. And interestingly, enough, the two biggest landowners, church landowners in Israel itself proper are the Greek Orthodox and Armenian Orthodox Patriarchates. And I added the Armenian bit just to remind you that I don't totally forget my Armenian roots. Well, that's something of an understatement. (laughs) Harry, thank you so much. Thank you for the hospitality and the different setting. I think we've painted a few word pictures for people who I hope can see glass tables and looking out over busy roads in, in West London. But it's, it, it is quite you, actually, because everything is all nicely, precise, in order, clean, tidy. It reminds, oh, yes. it reminds me of you. Yes, you're right. And a lot of people have actually criticised me for being me because they think I'm a bit too structured in my life. But hey, that's me. I'm not going to employ a lawyer that's not structured. <laughs> Thank you. Harry, thanks so much. Pleasure. I'm